The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So I shared with you right before the prayer that I, I've sort of I, I've I've mapped out the series, and for now I think it's going to be about a 21-part series as I've mapped out each section there. We're going to cover some sections of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe 10, 15 verses at a time. But then we come across some teachings that are just like bombs going off so that we may look at a single verse in a, in a sermon uh, because it's just filled with so much important uh, truth in them. Okay, And so if you map that out, it pretty much will carry us right to the end of this year, uh, right up to our Advent series as we get... Uh, celebrate the Christmas season at that time, okay? So the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew 5 through 7. And before we jump into the actual content of the sermon, I think we need to do a bit of groundwork first to basically offer a framework for understanding this, which is arguably the most extensive and important teaching of Jesus that he gave during his earthly ministry, um, it contains some of the most famous teachings of Jesus. Uh, teachings like turning the other cheek, loving your enemy, uh, removing the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And as familiar as we are with this teaching, I think the truth is, even as Christians, most of us don't actually do this stuff, if we're really honest. We don't really actually obey it. Um, I think the truth is some of us have a sincere desire to. We really wish we could live that life. But when we try it, we realize actually how hard it is. Um, and, and so as a result of that tension, there are some in the church who have taught that uh, this Sermon on the Mount is essentially impossible to obey. It's impossible to obey. I mean, anyone who has actually tried, not just overnight, but in an extended season to love your enemy, can speak truth to that. How hard the Sermon on the Mount is, is to obey. And as inspiring as this teaching may be, uh, the truth is that many of us come to the conclusion that no one can actually live like this. It's, it's not doable. It's not possible. Uh, and so, as a result, we don't even try, really, if we're honest. And on top of that, none of us feel all that guilty for not trying because we look at it and say, who can live this life? Who can actually do this? Maybe a few super saints among us, but for the average common Christian, no way. This is not possible. Um, G.K. Chesterton famously said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Left untried. I think that is very applicable to the Sermon on the Mount. 
And I, I want you to wrestle with what he's saying here because I think there's a sense in which we immediately excuse ourselves from this because we say, well, I wear that Christian label. I know I'm saved, so this doesn't apply to me. But as we start into the series on the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to ask yourself that sincerely. Do I even attempt the life that Jesus outlined in the Sermon on the Mount? Or is it just so much poetry that sounds great but is utterly unlivable? Here's another thing that I need to bring out in this idea that the Sermon on the Mount is an impossible teaching is that some have tried to resolve that problem by arguing that Jesus actually never meant us to even try to obey this teaching. Instead, what Jesus does is he intentionally presents us with extreme commandments that are so impossible to obey that the whole goal of that is to just teach us how sinful we are and our need for God's grace. In other words, it's just one object lesson after another of our depravity, that we are just hopelessly lost. Well, others also argue that the problem with the Sermon on the Mount is that it's utterly impractical. It's impractical. These are the words of a hopeless romantic who is just not grounded in reality. In other words, if, if, if you took these commands literally and actually tried to live your life according to them, it would be disaster. Just take the simple command of turning the other cheek, loving your enemy. I mean, if you actually lived your life that way and obeyed that teaching, you would become a doormat. People would walk all over you. I mean, do you even want that life? Is that even a desirable life for any of us to do that? And so one of the ways to deal with this objection is to simply say, hey, listen, do your best, try, but only to a point. You know, only to a point. We need to be realistic about this. Do your best, but don't go crazy, in other words. Don't take this stuff too literally. I mean, Sure, turn the other cheek. But counter that with the other bit of wisdom that goes something like this. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. In other words, you got to draw the line somewhere. you got to at some point stand for your rights, don't you? And you got to fight back. You can't just let everyone walk all over you. And I don't think Jesus meant that either. So let's be practical about this and not go too far with this and get carried away with this stuff about turning the other cheek and loving your enemy and not judging your brother. After all, all of us only have two cheeks, right? <laughs> and you're done. Pincus Lapide writes, the history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, and uncompromising and render it harmless. Lapid is not a Christian. 
He's a Jewish scholar. And he looks at the church and he looks at our view of the Sermon on the Mount and says, this is what I see when I see Christians dealing with this teaching. We domesticate it to the point where it is toothless and has no actual real impact on the way that we live our lives. Now, here is the problem with both of these views, that it's impossible and that it's impractical, or another way we could say that is undesirable, is that it's clear from the sermon itself that Jesus very much expected his disciples to obey this. Because this is how he ends the sermon in Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's clear that Jesus intended his teaching to be taken seriously, to be, in fact, embraced as a way of life by his disciples. These are not thought experiments that he's proposing to us. He is saying, this is wisdom for you as my followers. Live like this. Embrace these teachings as a way of life for yourself. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is the meat of discipleship and of the Great Commission, is teaching others how to obey these commands, to live the life that God called his followers to live. And based on that standard, how successful are we as the church of Jesus Christ? When Jesus commissioned his disciples, he said, go into all the world under this great commission, and he said, teach these new believers how to obey what I have taught you. I think right now we have to be honest that there's a pretty big culture war going on in America today. And a lot of the battle lines are drawn uh, through the church. And the truth is, when I look at social media and look at news reports and read Christian articles, Christians are crying foul of all of the ways that we are being persecuted and picked on and mischaracterized and, and you know, besmirched because we follow Jesus. And we cast it in a very holy battle of us and them because we're fighting the good fight. We're on God's side and the heathen is not. And here's the question. Is that really what's going on in the culture wars in America today? There is all of this rhetoric about reclaiming America for God, taking back the country for Jesus. You know, this author, Sky Jatani, who actually lives just down a few suburbs from us, he says, I think Christians in America have woefully misdiagnosed the problem. Look at what he writes in What If Jesus Were Serious. This interpretation of the current cultural landscape assumes Christians are marginalized <coughs> because we take Jesus too seriously. 
But what if we have it backwards? What if the underlying malady afflicting Christians today isn't that we take Jesus too seriously, but that we fail to take him seriously enough? What if much of the culture's judgment of Christians isn't the result of obeying Jesus, but the result of Christians ignoring him? Today, many Christians simply dismiss the Sermon on the Mount as irrelevant, even as they stridently proclaim their allegiance to Jesus in the culture. Far from being hostile toward Jesus' message, my experience has been that our society is hungry for precisely the kind of integrity, gentleness, kindness, and love Jesus reveals in his sermon. We who claim to be Christ's followers and seek a life shaped by his kingdom hold the antidote to the division and anger that is poisoning our culture. If we want the culture to take Jesus more seriously, Maybe we should try it first. Those are pretty indicting words, aren't they? I think Jatani's argument is supported by the data. Study after study done in America shows that non-Christians actually have a very high view of Jesus. When they hear the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, they say, that's great stuff. Wouldn't it be awesome if our world was actually like that? But they have such a low view of the church. Why is that? Is it really out of our faithfulness to Christ that we have gotten that reputation in this country? It's a sobering thought. But what if most of the criticism and persecution that we're experiencing right now in America is not out of our obedience to Jesus, but our disregard of his teaching and not taking it seriously enough? What if the world is turned off by us because we are so little like Jesus, not so much like him. Well, it takes me then to the, the question of how then do we approach the Sermon on the Mount? How do we apply it into our lives? And I, I want to, in this message, basically outline for you uh, four ideas, okay? Four truths that are going to frame how we should understand Jesus' teaching in this sermon. The first is this. The Sermon on the Mount is rooted in the authority of Jesus, in the authority of the Jesus. Right before the content of the sermon in Matthew 5, 1 to 2, we find these words. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And then he goes into, launches into the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout the gospel, his gospel, Matthew highlights, interestingly, the similarities between Moses in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New. And there are many of them. Just to name a few, both of their births were connected with a dream about their births. And in both of their births, children were slaughtered, babies were slaughtered. And both Moses and Jesus escaped as an infant from that slaughter. That was being done by a ruler who wanted to kill them. Both would spend time in the wilderness. Both of them fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And both of them were tested by God in that wilderness. And just like Moses ascended Mount Sinai, and on that mountaintop received the law of God, the Ten Commandments, which he then taught to the Israelites, we're told right here in Matthew this son of God ascended a mountain too. 
And on that mountain, he gave this teaching to his disciples. The commandments that he gave to them are captured in this sermon. In other words, what Matthew is doing is he's inviting us to see Jesus as a new Moses who had come to bring God's law to us in a fresh understanding under a new covenant. But this is where Jesus differs from Moses as well as all the prophets in the Old Testament and every other person because all of those people in the Old Testament were simply messengers that spoke basically like, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus never once said, thus says the Lord. Instead, he repeatedly uses this pattern, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said, and then he says, but I say to you. No attempt to quote God. He says, in giving you these commands, it is coming from my lips to your ears. By my authority, what I have to say. In those days, the rabbis would often quote more famous rabbis than them who came before them in order to give weight to their teaching. It was just the pattern of Jewish teaching was you quote everyone who came before you. And so they were wondering, how come Jesus never quotes these other rabbis like our rabbis do? All he ever says is, well, this is what I'm telling you. And it seemed really arrogant to them. It confused them. It stumbled them. But this is what the crowds said Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 to 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. In other words, what they recognized in this teaching of Jesus was he is not representing himself as a messenger of God. He is speaking with the authority of God himself, and that's because he is God. The argument that I'm making here is that we must take this sermon seriously because it comes directly to us from the source, from God himself in the person of Jesus. This is not some human interpretation of God's desire. This is God directly speaking to humanity through his son and saying, this is the life that I desire of you. And what's also interesting about this issue of authority is that he speaks it as if it is already a reality that is breaking into this world through the obedience of his disciples. And he can have that confidence because it is not up to us to make this so. But when I speak about the authority of Jesus, it's not just in the strength of his teaching, but in the power of who he is that he says, because of what I am doing in this life, this is going to be a reality as the kingdom of God unfolds in this world. It is breaking through, and it is happening through my followers. The second point that I want to make about the sermon and what it means for us to apply it is this. The Sermon on the Mount is rooted in the wisdom of Jesus, in the wisdom of Jesus. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard offers this really provocative commentary on what many of us think of Jesus. And it says this, very few people today find Jesus interesting as a person or of vital relevance to the course of their actual lives. He is not generally regarded as a real-life personality who deals with real-life issues, but is thought to be concerned with some feathery realm other than the one we must deal with and must deal with now. And frankly, he is not taken to be a person of much ability. 
It is the failure to understand Jesus and his words as reality and vital information about life that explains why today we do not routinely teach those who profess allegiance to him how to do what he said was best. Our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than a recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It is not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. And we can seriously and can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be what we take him to be in all other respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all? The smartest person who ever lived. When I first read these words decades ago, when I read Divine Conspiracy for the first time, these words blew me away because I had never even thought of Jesus as smart. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just didn't. And not just smart, but the smartest person who ever lived. I don't think any of us really think of Jesus that way, right? He was noble, he was holy. He was humble. But how many of us actually think of Jesus as smart, as intelligent? I, I don't think that's a category we associate with Jesus very much. And what Willard is getting at is this. If you think that way, then it's very likely that one of the fallouts of that kind of attitude toward Jesus is that you don't really take his teaching very seriously. You really appreciate the fact that he died for you and that his sins his blood covers your sins. But do you really think much of his teaching and what he is inviting you to in terms of your way of life? I don't think many of us regard his intelligence very much. For many of us, the importance of Jesus is limited to the fact that he died for our sins. You know, in a way, we could say all that Jesus required was to have a physical body so that that body could be nailed on a Roman cross. His intelligence, his wisdom don't seem all that important in the role that he played in our history. In other words, what I'm saying is that many of us don't seem to take Jesus seriously as a teacher who is competent to teach us how to live life well. Maybe a better a, a way that we can put it is like this. If a math teacher marks a student's paper as wrong because they thought one plus one equals three, that's totally fair. If a teacher marks a child's test wrong because they said that Mexico is on the northern border of the United States, totally justifiable. But let's say that there was a college professor grading an undergrad's paper. And in that paper, the student argued that the value of a human life is no different than the value of an animal life. And as a result of that morality, the teacher gave the, ch the student a lower grade. If that student petitioned to the university against that professor, I think we all recognize that there's a very high likelihood the student would win that case, wouldn't he? Because just about everyone in the administration would argue that the teacher had outstopped his bounds by declaring a value judgment on this person's morality. What are we saying here? 
What we are saying is this. It's okay for a math teacher to impose his view on a math exam because when it comes to hard sciences or mathematics, we say there is objective truth. But when it comes to the humanities or morality particularly, there is no objective truth. All there is is personal preference. When it comes to morality, there are no right or wrong answers. There is no one that is dumber or smarter than anyone else because everyone is right in their own mind. And it is to that thinking that Jesus speaks so strongly on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, this world has truth completely upside down. And what Jesus is saying is, when it comes to morality, there is a right and a wrong here. And it's because the creation we occupy, that we live in, did not come about out of some randomness. It was by the design of a creator who made this world to be lived in a certain way. And the way to that life that he intended is what he calls wisdom. Listen, I am all for tolerance in a plural society. I think it's actually a virtue that we can respect other people's beliefs. It's a good thing, okay? I don't want to impose Christianity as a state religion in America. That's the last thing I want. But my worry is out of this seeking of tolerance that even as Christians we start to confuse the truth that there is actually an objective truth that God claims. Not just in matters of mathematics and science, but what it actually means to live a moral life. The life that God desires of us. And so to navigate through the challenges of life and to live the actual life of flourishing, what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount is you need the wisdom of God. Without it, you have no compass to direct you to that good life that you long for. This is what Jesus offers on the Sermon on the Mount. His wisdom to teach us how to live life well. Look at the sampling of this teaching Jesus gives us on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 38 to 39. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Matthew 6, 26 to 27. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? That's wisdom. Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It'll be very interesting when we get to this passage and try to understand what Jesus means about throwing pearls to pigs because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that verse. So Jesus is addressing everything from anger and revenge to the temptation of money and wealth to the destructive ways that we try to influence other people. And so he is literally going from topic after topic, and Jesus is pointing out something really important here, and it's this. He says, conventional wisdom almost always gets it wrong. 
Whatever your human instinct is to do in that instance, there is a really good chance that it's wrong. And that the way of God, the way of biblical wisdom, is to often go in a direction that goes contrary to what your instincts tell you to do. We don't get to the will of God instinctively. Our instincts never get us there. Unless we submit ourselves to the teaching of God, his wisdom, that is the only way to the life of flourishing, to the life that God desires of us. And so he makes it clear that our decision to either reject or to embrace that wisdom that he offers us in the Sermon on the Mount will basically determine our destinies, whether we will experience the life God intended for us. Matthew 7, 24 to 25, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the, st- the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against this house, that house, yet it did not fall because it has had its foundation on the rock. So this is it. As simple as that, your destiny determined by whether you embrace this wisdom or reject it in your life. Let me say this. I think a lot of Christians feel the pressure to try to obey the Sermon on the Mount out of a sense of guilt, out of obedience, out of duty. But how many of us are actually motivated to live the life of this, that is displayed on the Sermon on the Mount because we actually think that Jesus is smart, that he knows better than me, And how many of us are humble to acknowledge that based on my own wisdom, more often than not, I get my life into trouble. I end up doing destructive things that hurt me and hurt others. And how many of you are at that place in your life where you can say, I need Jesus' wisdom because I cannot rationalize my way to that right answer by myself. I'm just not smart enough to do that. But Jesus is the smartest person Whoever walked this earth, do you believe that he can show you a better way than the paths that your own wisdom have led you to? There is a stubbornness of pride that must be broken in us in order to embrace this teaching because it is so counterintuitive and against what our nature tells us to do. The third sort of framework I want to give as we unpack the teachings of the sermon is this. The Sermon on the Mount invites us into life in the kingdom of God. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records this to give us context for this teaching. Matthew 4, verse 23 to chapter 5, verse 2, Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large clouds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. What Matthew is telling us is this, that Jesus first reveals the kingdom of God through his ministry of healing the sick and casting out demons. In other words, these become the powerful demonstrations that God's kingdom is breaking into the kingdom of this world. 
But then through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew is saying God has also revealed the coming of the kingdom through the teaching of Jesus given to his disciples who would then obey that teaching and through that obedience would transform the world and be partners in that kingdom work that God is doing. And so in helpful example after example, Jesus is giving us a detailed picture of what it in essence looks like to live a life under the leadership of Jesus as king. This is what that life looks like in terms of your dealing with revenge and anger and judgment toward others and of money and worry and all of these things. It says when Jesus becomes your king, this is what that life looks like. And so what he says is that the way to that kingdom starts with repentance. Repentance. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus calls us to repent, what he is basically saying is he is inviting us to reconsider the way that we have been approaching life apart from him. And to acknowledge that our own wisdom has led us astray into the bondage of sin. But only when we surrender to the leadership of Christ as king over us, as our Lord, can we experience the renewed, redeemed life purchased to us through his blood. And so as we become followers of Jesus, what Jesus invites us to do is to actually participate in the kingdom work. Matthew 6, verse 9 through 10. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, when we turn the other cheek, when we love our enemy, without, when, we, when we withhold judgment against others, when we resist the controlling influence of money in our lives, and on and on, what Jesus is saying is we are actually participating in his kingdom work, undoing the destructive work of sin that has just ravaged his creation. We become healing agents. We become part of the solution rather than part of the problem as we live in obedience to this teaching and bring about healing wherever we go in Jesus' name. That transformation begins first in us inwardly as God does that work in us personally. But then it has massive ramifications for the world around us. That's why so much of the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount has to do with our relationships with other people. When you truly come under this teaching of the wisdom of Jesus, it will radically transform the communities in your life, starting with your family and working its way out into your neighborhood and your places of work and on and on. We become the light and the salt, the city on a hill that transforms society in his name. I think that's also why the church plays such a vital role in this kingdom vision. It's because that hopefully when the world looks at the church, what they will see is a foretaste of that future hope presented to us in the gospel by the way that we treat one another and experience these kingdom realities. Here on this earth, right now, although we long for the fullness of that reality in the age to come. Let me just close with this last one, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. The Sermon on the Mount also envisions the Spirit-empowered life. 
These are commands that Jesus gives us. But as I've been saying all throughout this brief Holy Spirit series that we just finished, that life is possible only through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so even in the anticipation and the expectation of our obedience as his disciples, I think Jesus assumes the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. John 16, 13 to 14, we've already looked at this past verse, uh, verses a number of times in that previous series. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. This is the anticipation of the pouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people who will then enable us to live the life that God calls us to live. He gives us his spirit so that we can live in obedience to his teaching. Turning the other cheek based on the strength of the flesh is impossible. But by the power of the spirit, we can do all things in his name. <clears throat> Let me just close with this. I've been watching uh, another Korean drama, and, you know, I, I don't want to go into the whole story. I mean, every one of my close friends who finds out I'm watching Korean dramas goes, no way, you are the last person on earth that I would ever think would watch a gay drama. So there it is. You know, there is a God, right? Um, so I've been watching this Korean drama lately called Miseng, which in English is translated as incomplete life. And it exposes some of the harsh realities of what at times can be a very toxic Korean work culture. And it does so by following these four interns who, after their internship, are hired by this trading company. And of these four interns, uh, Gure is the underdog. Hired on a contract basis, he doesn't get an employee contract. He's a contract worker. And the reason is because he doesn't have a college degree only a high school diploma. And unlike the other interns who are ambitious and conniving and calculating, Gure is, has this childlike earnestness. And from that earnestness, he ends up succeeding above all the other interns, to, much to their anger. His boss gives everyone on the team a Christmas card. And for everyone else, this card is just this empty formality. I mean, the guy literally writes them in like five minutes. <laughs> He's just handing them out going, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. But Gura sees great meaning in it. And so he takes the card very ceremoniously. And he walks up to the roof of the building where he opens it like a ceremony. And he reads the card from his boss. <laughs> and all the card says in it is, you did your best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all the card says. But receiving this card from his boss, he is just so swept up in the emotion of the moment of feeling recognized and acknowledged that he launches into this poem at the end of the episode. And I want to read to you that poem. Translated into English, it says, Be drunk. You always have to be drunk. That's all there is to it. It's the only way so as not to feel the horrible burden of time that breaks your back and bends you to the earth. You have to be drunk all the time, but on what? Wine, poetry, or virtue, as you wish. 
but be drunk. And if sometimes on the steps of the palace or the green grass of a ditch, in the mournful solitude of your room, you wake again, drunkenness already diminishing or gone. Ask the wind, the wave, the star, the bird, the clock, everything that is flying, everything that is groaning, everything that is rolling, everything that is singing, everything that is speaking. Ask what time it is, and the wind, wave, star, bird, clock will answer you. It is time to be drunk. <laughs> now, I'm not encouraging alcohol consumption here right now. That's not the point. But you see this guy, Gura, he is surrounded by people born into privilege and yet are so unhappy and discontent with their lives. And it is as if he alone in his entire company sees the beauty and significance of what they're experiencing together. While all of the salaried workers are griping and comparing, comparing their salaries and bonuses at the end of the year, Gura is just given a little bag of cooking oil, like all the secretaries and women get. And sensing that he may be disappointed, his boss kind of sternly yells at him, um, I told you, don't ask for too much. Don't get greedy, I told you that. And Gura replies to his boss these beautiful words, uh, temporary or permanent employee, it's not a matter of status. It's not that. I just want to keep working with you and the team. And then he says, us together forever. <laughs> and when his boss hears that, he starts choking up and looking really embarrassed. Yes, it's, it's melodrama, and it's over the top. It's so Korean, right? <laughs> um, but I think there's a point to be discovered here. We can go through life only half living, going through all of the motions, but not truly being present through most of it, not appreciating what we've been given. And so Gura looks at that and says, be drunk, <laughs> Am I the only one that is intoxicated here? Breathe the air. Don't let life pass you by, focusing on all the wrong things, looking at the glass half empty. See the beauty and the significance of the life you've been given. And I don't think God would tell us, be drunk. But we do know in Ephesians 5, 18, it says, don't be drunk on wine, but be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit because when the Spirit is in you, what you realize is that alcohol is just a cheap substitute of the real thing. What those alcoholics are chasing is nothing like the Spirit of God in the heart of a person that makes you come alive. And maybe for the first time in your life, you see the beauty of God's creation and the privilege of who you are before him and you can genuinely celebrate that and live life as God intended you to. We need the Spirit of God to obey the Sermon on the Mount. But oh my God, the beauty of a life that can obey this teaching. Have you ever met anyone like that who truly loves their enemy 
and turns the other cheek. And when you look in their eyes, there's no judgment against you there, no matter what you have done against them. And money holds no power over their life. They hold everything loosely as a gift of God. I first encountered the Sermon on the Mount and thinking it's truthfulness when I was at such a low point in my life. When I was in the midst of serving the church in so many ways and had climbed the status of leadership in so many ministries and yet felt so empty inside. And through the writings of Dallas Willard in The, Great, the Divine Conspiracy, I read these words of Jesus, what I felt like for the first time. And I can't tell you how many times I was brought to tears reading it. As I read it, I kept thinking, this is the life that I want. And I've grown up my entire life in the church, and I don't know this life. I'm a stranger to it, but oh my God, I want it. I want that so badly. Because I see the damage I was doing in my marriage at that time and what I was doing to my wife and the way that I was in many ways sort of pushing my kids away and all of the despair that I was feeling and all of the restlessness despite hours of being on my knees in prayer thinking that the more hours I spent, the more God would love me, the more he would approve of me. And I see these words of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7. And he says, this is how you ought to pray. Because your father already knows what you need before you ask. As I close the message today, I just want to ask you that simple question. You may have grown up all of your life in the church, but do you know this life that Jesus presents to us in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you know a life free of worry? A life free of the controlling power of money? a life free of judgment against others? Do you know the life of joy and gratitude and humility and love, even to the point of loving someone who stabs you in the back and hurts you? Because Jesus says, I can show you that life. I can lead you into that life. Let's pray. This is a bit of a roadmap to the journey we have in front of us for this series on the Sermon on the Mount, which I've titled Life in the Kingdom. And the truth is, this could just be one more sermon series here at ICC. And you can just be intrigued and be tickled and find a few interesting things to take away from each message and go through the intellectual exercise of pondering what a life like that could look like hypothetically. Or you could take Christ's words to heart because his invitation is not to enter into a philosophical debate about the meaning of life. His invitation to us is to bid us to die and come and follow, to discover a resurrected life under the wisdom that he alone can offer us. He alone can lead us into a life of unimaginable beauty, Enjoy through our surrender to his leadership, his lordship over us. Will this just be another sermon series that you're going to coast through? 
Or will there be a bending of the knee in your own heart and saying, not my will, but yours be done? I'm tired of the limits of my life being my own wisdom, God. I want to know what you could do in me in a totally surrendered heart. Maybe that could be your prayer as we start this series. I don't know what's ahead of us, God. I don't know what kind of crazy teaching is going to be unfolding as we go through this teaching. But I know that there's got to be more to this life than what I'm experiencing right now. I want the life that you lived, Jesus, when you walked this earth. The life you modeled for us. Because you not only taught that life, but you lived it. And God, I am powerless in my flesh to do this. I need more of you. More of you. So give me your spirit, God. We're going to come to the table right now. And as we come to the table, I want to remind you of what I said earlier in the sermon. The church stands as one of the greatest signposts of the kingdom in this time. Because we are that kingdom community. And that's a great calling. And here's the thing. I can't imagine a greater witness in our world than a people of God who actually live out the Sermon on the Mount in their life. Can you imagine the light that would be lit on a hill if the church in America lived that life? How many people would come to Jesus if we exemplified that life? But I think we could also recognize before I can exemplify that life, maybe you have to come to the honest starting point to say, I don't even know that life in my own heart. I don't. And so maybe as we come to the Lord's table, your prayer today is simply, I want to know that life. I want to know that abundant life, that I could commend it to others around me. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in that upper room and he broke that bread and said, this is my body broken for you, for your sins. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. Then he passed that cup of wine and had them drink and said, this wine represents my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of the cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's go ahead and take the bread first. And then take the cup and then go ahead and pray. And then our worship team will come and lead us to a couple final songs of response.